It's time for kids' church, so children <clears throat> and those who wanna, don't want to listen to the message, you can go out. <laughs> Thanks, Jill. <clears throat> A holy people, based on Ephesians chapter 5, verses 3 to 7, and this is part 17 in our series on Ephesians. So as we continue our series... We come to the implications of what it means to be imitators of God, which we looked at those two verses at the beginning of chapter 5 last week. So these verses that follow are the moral imperatives for the child of God who is loved by God and seeks to honour God in his life. These words are hard-hitting. I don't think there's one person here who is exempt from the words that we're looking at this morning, certainly including myself. And we all need to look deep inside our hearts to understand what God is, is saying to us. Because this is, this is a checklist. This is, this is not the standard of the world. This is God's standard, the highest possible standard that we, as children of God, are to set for ourselves. This is how we are to live as as Christians. And it is passages such as these, because they are hard-hitting, that are seen so counter-cultural, so oppressive and even repulsive to the moral standards that we are witnessing today. So first of all, verses 3 to 4, We look at the warning, verses 3 to 4. But among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be any obscenity or foolish talk or coarse joking which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. So first of all, let's look at Immorality. The, the, the Greek word here for immorality is porneia, from which we get our English word for pornography. It's a broad word covering all types of sexual misconduct. It refers to anything and everything that is outside of the, the union the lifelong union of one biological man and one biological woman, I have to say that today, in marriage. This word appears often in the New Testament because as the gospel spread throughout the empire, it had to come head on. It had to be confronting a culture that was Thoroughly pagan. Incest was rife. Abandoning children, just exposing them after birth, just infanticide was rife. Prostitution was rife. Pedophilia was rife. All sorts of licentious behaviour was normal. So the moral standards in Ephesus, along with 
cities like Corinth and Athens and Rome, they had sunk so low that the public had become indifferent, indifferent to what was going on. Ah, just just the way it is. If you don't believe me, well, archaeologists today uh, are uncovering things as they go and do their their diggings along some of around some of these ancient cities, and, and particularly the, the great city of Ephesus, the once great city of Ephesus. Its its grandeur was renowned. As a, as, a, as a metropolis of great significance in the ancient world. But as they are uncovering these great things about the, this ancient city, they are also finding evidence of the debauchery that took place within it. If you were a sailor, and at that stage Ephesus was a, a port, a very famous port, If you were a sailor coming into Ephesus, there were signs inviting you to enjoy the temple prostitutes in the city, in the temple of of Artemis, which was one of the great, it's one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. The prostitutes asked for donations, which were then directed to the temple maintenance and upkeep, because it was a huge structure. Girls as young as 13, 14 were brought up thinking that there was absolutely nothing wrong with ritualistic prostitution, giving themselves over to depraved men. In fact, they considered it a privilege. Parents would hand over their their girls, their daughters, in service of the goddess Artemis. It was an act of worship to the fertility goddess. They would do this so then they were able to have children and, and be fertile. With that backdrop and in this context, you, you can understand why these words to the Ephesians would have been so revolutionary. The word impurity refers to something filthy inside and outside. It could refer even to pus around a wound or a decaying body. And this is actually an an accurate description of what happens to a society that gives itself over to immorality. It becomes like a a rotting, stinking corpse, which is what is happening, what was, what happened to the, to the Greeks and the Romans. This is what destroyed the great Greek and Roman empires. It was decaying from within. Into that world, into that world came the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. With, with its call to, to freedom from bondage, the forgiveness of sins, and the call to holiness. Unfortunately, despite the lessons of history which we are trying to suppress so desperately, it appears 
Because if we can suppress history, we can then revisit those days again. We want to go back there because that was, they were the really good times before this oppressive Christian culture came in. Theologian Carl Truman said, and I quote, The intuitive moral structure of our modern times prioritises victimhood, sees selfhood in psychological terms, regards traditional sexual codes as oppressive and life-denying, and places a premium on the individual's right to define his or her own existence. All these things play into legitimising and strengthening those groups that can define themselves in such terms. They capture the spirit of the age. And yet, over and against the spirit of the age, the child of God is called to live differently. Not to accept, to live differently, to to shun sexual immorality because they are improper for God's holy people. And remember that that verse 3, holy, the word holy, saint, refers to, it means someone who is set apart, someone who is called, somebody who is set apart. As, As Peter the apostle says, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. And and next week we'll be looking at that contrast between light and darkness. So we have been, been chosen, we have been separated to live a holy life for God. We are not to live for Artemis or Aphrodite or Diana or any other idol, old or current for that matter. So let me bring, let me bring this quite straight and say, if you're not prepared, if you, if you don't want to live a holy life, Just forget about Christianity. Forget about it. Start following something else. Something that will follow, that will satisfy your appetite. Because the call to a Christian, the call for the child of God, is this. This is it. A call to purity. You're a saint. You're holy. Because you're a child of God. Secondly, greed. Mentions greed here. I suppose we ask, why does the apostle include greed in a section on, on immorality? Greed seems out of place here, but, but you see, these two sins are just different expressions of the same basic weakness of fallen nature, namely an uncontrolled 
appetite. Now, even though it might appear not, it probably doesn't appear obvious at first, lust and greed are unlikely bedfellows. They go together because at the core they are the same sin but expressed differently. And this is further, there is further evidence that God knew what he was talking about when he gave Israel the Ten Commandments. And the Tenth Commandment, the very last one, says this. In Exodus chapter 20, verse 17, it says, You shall not covet your neighbour's house. You shall not covet your neighbour's wife or his male or female servant, his ox or donkey or anything else that belongs to your neighbour. It's pretty inclusive, isn't it? Covers a lot of things. Not just materially, covers people, life, even livestock. So when we talk of coveting, we, we, we tend to restrict it to the lust for money. But the Greek word for, for coveting literally means overreaching, overreaching. It speaks of an appetite, insatiable lust to, to satisfy the appetites of the body or any desire for lust or anything. So I think we all know what greed is, but we sort of underestimate how pernicious its effect is on us and how pernicious its effect can be on us. Because we live in a capitalist system and we get absorbed into it so easily. How easily our goals for a comfortable retirement financial independence or security can slowly degrade into something more sinister. And there is, in all of us, there is this deep sense of insecurity that what we have is is not going to be enough and that we must have more just to make sure. So instead of praying the Lord's Prayer, which says, give us this day our daily bread. Lord, give me this day next year's bread as well, and the year after. Because I really need it today. I just really need to make sure that it's there. Suddenly, our daily dependence on God is not enough. We need to have it in our accounts. We need to have it in our pantry. We need to have it in our possession. Speaking of overreach, Leo Tolstoy, which is between him and Dostoevsky, they're perhaps the greatest Russian poets that ever lived, writers. Leo Tolstoy once wrote a story about a successful farmer who was not satisfied with his lot. He wanted more of everything. 
So one day he received a novel offer. For a thousand rubles, he could buy all the land he could that he could walk around in a day for a thousand rubles. It was a bargain. If only he could walk it, it was his. The only catch in the deal was that he had to be back at his starting point by sundown. So early the next morning, he started out walking at a fast pace. By midday, he was very tired, but he kept going, covering more and more ground. Well into the afternoon, he realized that his greed had taken him far from the starting point. He quickened his pace, and as the sun began to sink low in the sky, he began to run, knowing that if he did not make it back by sundown, the opportunity to become an even bigger landholder would be lost. And as the sun began to sink below the horizon, he came within sight of the finish line. Gasping for breath, his heart pounding, he called upon every bit of strength left in his body and staggered across the line just before the sun disappeared. He immediately collapsed, blood streaming from his mouth. In a few minutes, he was dead. Afterwards, his servants dug a grave. It was not much over six feet long and three feet wide. The title of Tolstoy's story was, How Much Land Does a Man Need? Apparently not much bigger than six foot by three and six feet deep. This is, a, this is a warning to all of us. And before moving on, it's good to be reminded of Paul's admonition to Timothy. 1 Timothy 6.10. You know the words well. And it has been misquoted, mind you, often. But this is what it says. For the love of money is, not, is, is a root of all kinds of... Of evil, the love of money. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. If that was true then, imagine 2,000 years later how truer it is. As someone has wisely said, money is a, is a wonderful servant but a terrible master. Let's move on to obscenity. It's interesting how the Apostle Paul moves from actions in verse 3 to speech and thoughts in verse 4. Obscenity refers to that which is evil, ugly, immodest and dirty. Warren Weasby says there are two indications of a person's character. What makes him laugh and what makes him cry. And here we have it. You know, it's filthiness, foolish talking, jesting, which are not appropriate for the believer. 
foolish talk. What is foolish talk? Foolish talk is the babbling of a drunken man. Under the influence of alcohol, a man says things he would never normally say. And the Greek word is morologia. Logia comes from the word for logos, which you know, which means word. And moron, well, you know what that refers to. No explanation needed. So foolish talking is talking about empty things. Moronic Conversation, empty conversation, vain questions and debating, talking without thinking, uh, opening your mouth without putting your brain into gear, saying something you don't really mean, speaking without wisdom and not considering the results, the implications of what you are saying. That's all foolish talking. This is especially dangerous with people who like to talk a lot. Okay? Be careful. If you like being the centre of attention and have the gift of the gab, beware lest you talk so much and end up sounding not just like a fool, but a moron. Solomon, King Solomon, was onto something when he said... Proverbs 17:28. Please listen to his words. Even a fool who keeps silent is considered wise. When he closes his lips, he is deemed intelligent. And I'm reminded of, of Job's friends who turned up after they heard what happened to him, the tragedy in his life. Now, and his friends, for seven days, they just sat there saying nothing. And then they did start speaking, and all the bad theology, all the bad arguments, all the accusations started coming out of their mouth. So for seven days, they appeared really wise. And that, you know what? This is why many times I have, I've had to bite my tongue Despite being goaded, just listen, just shut up. Because there is a time and there is a place for everything. Proverbs 29.11 A fool gives full vent to his spirit, but a wise man quietly holds it back. Now in discussing all of this, we need to be careful because I fear that uh, at the end of the service today, nobody will be talking to each other. (laughs) Just in case you look like a moron. Okay? We need to be careful. We need to be wise because conversation, humor is a great gift from God. How dull, how boring our life would be without it. We'd like to spend time with family, with friends. How good it is when friends get together and have a good laugh. 
But this is, this is part of God's gift to us in, in fellowship, in, in, in family, and in, in friendship. For we are social beings in the good times and in the bad times. But there is a time for everything, isn't there? Time for everything under the sun. But be wise, be careful, be observant. And when the time comes, be quiet. Now, the consequences in verses 5 to 6, the consequences. It's interesting that, there, that here we are presented with not only future but also present consequences for this behaviour. Um, and please note that the, <clears throat> that the warnings here deal with the habitual practice of sin, a lifestyle of sin and not the occasional act of sin. It is, it is about those who display no penitence, no shame. This is what these words here are referring to. Because there are many prodigal sons and daughters out there. Like David, they can, they can fall into deep sin. But unlike the unbeliever, they will repent and they will be brought back to God if they are true believers, if they are true sons and daughters of God. I like the words of Warren Weasby who said, a Christian is not sinless, but he does sin less and less. It's a good reminder, isn't it? So the future, let's look at the future, verse 5. For... Of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure or greedy person, such a person is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. So, remember how in the early chapters of of Ephesians we were reminded many times of our glorious inheritance in and through Christ and his kingdom. Through his blood, we are heirs, we are co-heirs with Christ. And while we, we can't do anything to earn that, because it is a gift of grace, it is a gift of God, there is a certain type of behavior expected, called to, for those who are heirs of eternity, who will be sharing eternity with God, who are destined for it. There is an expectant behavior. And one way to know whether someone is a Christian or not is by observing their lifestyle. What is their appetite like? We looked at appetite before. Is it for the things of God or is it for the things of this world? And let's be honest, many immoral people today look like they're they're getting away with everything. But there is a day of reckoning that is coming. It is coming. Their behaviour, however, should be a pointer as to whether they will spend eternity in heaven or that they will spend eternity in hell. It's that simple. Their lifestyle is a pointer. So that's the future. But what about the present, verse 6? 
Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them. Yes, I know, we don't like to talk about God's wrath, but it is not just a future event because it is clearly evident in our day as well. In Romans 1, the Apostle Paul talks about man being given over. That is part of God's wrath, which means that many will suffer the the consequences for their rebelliousness, for their sin, even now. It is displayed in the way that man's foolish heart is darkened. So he he doesn't even realise, he continues to walk in darkness, bumping into things and causing more and more problems, more and more issues, more and more damage to himself and to others in society. That is what it's like to walk in darkness. Look around. Where is all this progress for the last 21 centuries? If first century Ephesus was so depraved, why is the 21st century so similar? What becomes of the often made claim that proper education is all we need? Why is rubbish in moral rubbish included in the curriculum in our primary school kids these days? What is the content of education? Why is it that after 2,000 years of research and of growing human knowledge, we are murdering babies in the womb like never before? Why is it that when a reporter when a reporter goes to Africa and asks the Maasai men in Africa what is a woman, he gets a straight answer. Yet when he asks a medical specialist in the West what is a woman, he can't get a straight answer. This is imbecility. And this is part of, actually part of God's judgment. And then It may not be obvious among the poor and the uneducated, but it is quite observable among the so-called culture, the privileged and the highly educated of today. Just look, this is part of God's judgment. They are given over to imbecility. So don't be, please, as children of God, do not be deceived by empty words. Because they are empty, they are moronic, they are stupid. Do not be deceived by it. Don't listen to them, just turn it off. Because words are important. Words are what enable us to communicate with each other. Words are powerful. Word is the way that God communicates with us. John 1. And the living word is Jesus Christ, our Lord. So don't redefine, don't change the meaning of the words. Don't make them meaningless and empty. And certainly recognise that only Christ 
has the words of eternal life, which is exactly what we're looking at today. Final lessons. There are many, but let me just leave you three final lessons. Firstly, it says here, do not be partners with them. Now, the Apostle Paul is not prohibiting any contact or association with such people. How would we possibly take the good news to them? Right? The Greek word is not about association, but about participation. That's the, that's the strength of this word. And the word for partners refers to intimate relationships that involve you in another person's life. In other words, be friends with the lost, but don't get involved in their moral filth. Don't, don't be tricked into thinking that you can live like that without consequences. You can't. It's contrary to the gospel that saved you. This is how you are to live as a Christian. Secondly, we live, let's be honest, we live in morally challenging times. That is true. But then again, every age has had its darkness and its dangers. The task for the Christian is not to whine about the moment. Why wasn't I born 100 years ago or 2,000 years ago? We, it's, it, our task is not to get together and reminisce about the good old days and, and wish that we were back there. Our task is to understand its problems and to respond appropriately. None of us here chose the times in which we would be born, but God has. God has given us this day to live. We are to be witnesses. We are light in the darkness. And we know that most people won't listen, but some will. So we continue to live as God has called us to do. And finally, pursue holiness. And when we say pursue holiness, holiness is not something that we simply drift passively into. We are not passive spectators of this sanctification process that God works in us. A sort of, you know, let go and let God. Yes, the Holy Spirit is active, obviously, in our sanctification. But you look at the words of the Apostle Paul. He is constantly challenging himself and us to purposely put away all conduct that is incompatible with the life in Christ. He talks about punishing his body, pursuing, fighting like a fighter, not giving up. Because the evidence of our salvation will be seen in the way that we live. And the way that we live is a pointer. It, it, it directs people towards God. That's the way it's supposed to work. 
And the glory will go to God, not to us, because we are leading people out of darkness into his wonderful light. That is the challenge. That is the call. And that is the highest call which has been placed on us as the children of God. Amen.